0: Let's learn. Today we're going to be focusing on a, s- a standalone topic, and the topic is, do ideas matter? And of course the answer is, of course ideas matter, but it's not as simple as, as, as meets the eye. Why, why is that? Um, because, first of all, if you think that ideas matter, then why don't we speak about ideas so much? Most of our life we don't talk about ideas. I remember there was an a, a interesting statement saying that, uh, um, that average people talk about people, and uh, more intelligent people talk about things and intelligent people talk about ideas. We don't spend an awful lot of of time talking about ideas in general, we talk about the weather, we talk about the traffic, we talk about all kinds of things, we talk about frustrations, aggravations, work, and all those kind of things, but we don't really spend so much time talking about um, ideas. Um, If you think about the sum total of our life and how much time we spend talking about them. I'd like to investigate it from from a very unusual angle, an unusual angle which I think that perhaps is is, uh, we, we we overlook let's start the Let's start at the beginning. So let's tell this. This is a Gemara which describes a Story which is well known, but the angle on the story is lesser known Here's how it works. The Gemara is describing the end of one of the ten martyrs lives So there were t- ten people around the time of the Hadrianic persecution following the destruction of the first the second best in which there were ten people killed by the Romans one of their names was a person by the name of Hanania Ben Tradion he was a very famous person he was a teacher and interpreter of torah and uh, torah in the public and he, he he this is the end of his life so we are told the following in source one tanna rabbonan Rabbi rabia ben kisma halach Rabbi khanani ben trajon davkar so Rabbi rabia ben kisma one of the great Tanaim, was was ill here Rabbi khanani ben trajon comes to visit him amol khanania is brother ya'tcha yadayu umazumina shamaim him don't you know that this is an, a divinely ordained na- nation that's going to take over? Why Sheikri is Baso that destroyed the base of the Mishnah, the and the, the innermost sanctum, varagai is achasidov and killed the the his pious ones, vaavda is tuvoy and and destroyed all the goodness, Vadain who he kayemes and this this empire still exists. And I hear that despite all of this, despite all the signs in the T, right? This is not even in the T if you think about it. It's like, look around, read the news, see what's happened, and you still sit there teaching Torah, right? You're going against the tide of everything that's around us. Why? So he says, God, heaven should have mercy on us. That's uh, 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 on me, essentially. That's what Rabbi Khanan ibn b'chadiyah responds. <laughs> he says, I'm telling you uh, logical ideas, and you're telling me God's going to have mercy on you? I would be surprised. I'd be surprised if you and your Torah would not get burnt soon. It's a very dismal ad, uh, uh, outlook, but this is what's the, thats the reality that they're living with during this period. Rabbi He says, "What is it about? Be, what is it about to be for me and the world to come?" And he goes and he asks him about, "Were you very careful about your stock giving?" And then he says, and he talks about how one time he got mixed up with his own money and Purim and and stock, and he distributed all his own money to, to avoid this. And he says, "You're definitely going to enter into Alamava." Okay. Amrul Loi, in the Amrul, um, then the next paragraph, Loyo Yomi Muatim Achinafta Reb Yasubin Kisma, the Holku called Ali Yusu Romi, Levak Rovisbidu, Hesbed Godel. So all the, the dignitaries of Rome came to 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 um, eulogize Rubi Reb Yasub bin Kismo, the Khazras and Matonlo Reb Ruby Khananibrajon, Show Torah. So the dignitaries come from the funeral of Ryu Rya Reb Sieber- Yaseb bin Kisma, who's obviously famed in, even in the Roman circles, and they find the Ruchan ibn Trajun is sitting there teaching Torah in public. They took him, wrapped him in the in the Torah scroll, and they put him in uh, they, 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 they ensconced him in um, bundles of wood and they lit him on fire. They mm-hmm. they placed wet sponges, they placed around the, his upper chest. that he should suffer through the burning. Omar loy Beitoy. His daughter said to him, "Abba, erech ba kach. How can I see you in such a way?" Omar loy il meliani nisrafti levadi hoya hadavar kosheli. Ach shoshani nisrafti sevatora imi imivakesh elbona shel sevatora yivakesh elboni. He says, "If I was just being burnt at the stake, that's one thing. But I'm being burnt with the Sefer Torah. God's gonna, gonna, God's gonna claim justice on the Sefer Torah and He's gonna <laughs> claim justice upon me as well." Omar um, loy talmidav, and this is the this is the critical line. Rabbi um, Rabbi they say, uh, as he's burning at the stake and he's being preserved in this terrible um, torture, they say, Rabbi, what do you see? Um, strange question to ask, but he, but it's almost like sort of what's, what? How do you make sense of all of this? That's that's essentially what they're asking. Amalahen, he screams out to them, Gilyon Nisrafin parachos Bavin or gvilin and the Parachos that 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 he says that I see that the scroll is being burnt, but I see the letters are flying free. That's what he says. And then they ask him an interesting question about whether he can open his mouth, which would allow more air in, which would allow the the, bur- the burning to go fast, and him to die with le- um, faster. And he refuses to do so. And that uh, and that leads to an interesting discussion in palliative care in general. Um, so, there, but may, uh, this statement over here is such a famous statement. It's such. This is such a poetic statement. It's a statement which is been memorialized in so many ways, it's even been memorialized in our own shul lobby. Because the main focus um, window in our lobby is this statement of Rabbi Khanani Ben Trajan, which is that the Gvilin Israfias is the orange, the fire at the bottom of that stained glass window is the fire consuming the Torah, but the letters flying out which means to say that you might be able to consume the biological material, but you cannot consume the innermost core. And what, what g- d- generally understood in this Qumari is being said is a metaphor for the nation of Israel, which is essentially the, the rebuttal to Rabbi ben Kisma. Rabbi Yossi ben Kismar said, surely you can see that look who's, look who's in charge. Look at the dominion. Look, look, look at the base of the that have been destroyed. What do you say about that? How can you continue to teach? And he says, you know what? Never will the Roman Empire ever controlled the soul of the nation of Israel. That's what he's essentially saying. They may control our bodies, they may burn our bodies, as they are mine, but they will never control the future of the nation of Israel. That's what's being, being described over here and it's a very powerful statement which, is, which has essentially been a guiding light for us through the many times that the Jews have been burnt and many times they've been killed, whether it's in Spain, whether it's the holocaust, that the, the, the scrolls, the, so to speak, the bodies of Israel have been hurt and tortured and destroyed, but never was the soul of Israel ever destroyed. And that's what Rabbi Yohanan Ibn Tradion is essentially saying. And it's ironically, the metaphor is true. And here we are today, here we are today and maimed and limping and scarred, but yet we're here. Yet we're here and that's what Rabbi Hanani Ben-Tradion was saying. However, that's the classic way of reading the Gemara. When Rav Herschel Schechter Schlitter was here just a, just a, a couple years ago in our shul, he read this Gemara and he said something different in interpreting this Gemara. It's that idea that I'd like to focus on. He read this through the Gemara and he said that, you know what this refers to? It refers to bigger bigger than that. He says that he, this Gemara is describing the fact that you cannot kill an idea. You cannot kill an idea. The Torah shebichsav can be controlled by external forces, but the Torah Shabal pe can never be stamped out. That's a very, very powerful statement to think about. I like to think about that notion, that the fact that an idea cannot be stamped out. That's an, that, that concept has played itself out in history multiple, multiple times. Let's talk about do- some examples of this in secular history. As an example, so so one of the great, greatest events, or uh, not great as a, as a judgment, but one of the most powerful events which affected um, the Europe in the last a thousand years was the Reformation. The Reformation was when finally a group of people or numbers of people said that the Catholic Church is not doing its job. They're using funds, public funds to 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 um, to feather their beds, to make their buildings, to to enrich the the the, the priesthood. But in the end of the day, it's it's it, it, they they are all self-centered, and it was a pretty good pretty good uh, assessment of of the times. And so there were many people who who fought against this. One example, so this classic example is Luther, who was a terrible person when it came to Jews, but when it came to his perspective on Christianity. He famously, um, on the date of October 31st, 1517, he nailed to the front of the, the church in Witten, or the, the, the Wittenberg Castle. He nailed to the door what was called the 95 Theses. Where he did his ideas of what was wrong and what was supposed to be with Christianity. And as much as the Catholic Church fought and as much blood was spilled, this changed the face of Christianity, Protestantism t- took off, and this is the Germanic areas, the, the area of England beca- adopting this. This changed the way that the church operated. All of, all of Europe was overturned by an idea. And as much as you could kill people, you couldn't kill the idea. That is one, one example of where no matter, yes? But many <clears throat> ideas have been killed by either being disproven scientifically, intellectually, mathematically... True. True, true, true. Good. So I'm going to get to that in a second. I'm just going to... I, I, right now, I just want to use a few broad strokes to talk about how difficult it is to kill an idea. And then I'd like to address your point, which is a very, very good point. Um, another example is Mein Kampf. Right? So, Mein Kampf was written in the, in the 20s. And, um, and this, the, uh, this book, written in 1925 specifically, which actually means My Struggle, written by um, um, Adolf Hitler, was a person who really, it was his manifesto for the, the atrocities that he was about to perpetrate. It was about German pride, Aryan, the Aryan race, about its distinction and uh, solving those problems. It was about his plans with the Jews. He meant what he said. And, and you know what? He did it. And, and millions of books were, co- were sold. It made him a multi-millionaire in the late 30s, just to understand uh, this. But it was more than just the money that he got out of it. It was the fact that this was essentially his guidebook. Do you know something interesting, just if you are reading recently, the copyrights or the ownership, the rights of ownership of printing of Mein Kampf were given to, uh, to uh, I believe, to Bavaria. Um, and they, refu- they disallowed the printing of Mein Kampf for a hundred years because that was when the rights, the rights ran but i think the rights ran out i don't know why it was but in, i think it fifth in the end of 2016. Yeah. at which point in time it was a great controversy because now the rights ran out and everybody started printing again and guess what it's a number one print in a number of countries in eastern europe today right so the idea is back even though it is it is disallowed the ideas somehow this nefarious this evil idea continues even today, it's very hard to stop, to, to stop ideas. Another example is Das Kapital, right? um, um, written by a, a, a Jewish man, of course, Karl Marx. And if you think about how much that book about communism and the idea that a communist ideal has affected nations, has affected countries, has affected the world. Look at Russia, China, look at the war, the Cold War, right? All stemmed from one idea which changed the, the world itself. And no matter how much, you know, whether it's the McCarthy era, era when you talk about trying to stop ideas, it's a very difficult to stop an idea. Now it comes back to Nachman's question, which is, but it requires a little more sophisticated thinking than that. Oh, just, just to throw into here as well, for anybody who had as their reading set work in school, Fahrenheit 451, right? So, so this is a book written in the 1950s, which was specifically about, again, it was written in the shadow of, um, of Soviet, the rise of Soviet ideas, which was stamping out of ideas. There was the, the notion that we can, we can eradicate ideas in the, the wake of Nazi book burning, where they sought to stamp out ideas. And the idea, the concept behind the book, I, I thought it was a little too excessive, but the idea behind the book sort of in the 1984-esque type of book is about an era in which that books were disallowed. That all books were burnt, and uh, and the firehouse, the firemen were the people called not to put out the fires, but to burn the books, and it's about a, a the the this internal struggle of a particular fireman. Who wants to save books and read them? And it's the resurgence of ideas through the memory of people, not through the script of books. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to to comes to this. But the idea again is is you cannot stamp out ideas so easily, and that's what the Gemara was saying by Rabbi Hanani Ben Trajan. Is you can't stamp out an idea; the idea will, will will live on. Sometimes for the good, and sometimes for the evil as well. And what was that? The Proud Boys. Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of ideas you can put take them off social media but they will, they, they will re, there will be a resurgence somewhere else. Now it leads, to, it leads to an interesting question is, this is far too broad a stroke to, to, be, a, to, be, to be fair. So I, I, the, the idea actually is, is a little more complex than that. And this is, this is a theory, this is a model of a theory, which I think is important to appreciate, is that an idea needs to be, ma- needs to be um, essentially married to practice or experience for an idea to survive. What does that mean? So let's just put this in a basic, in, in basic terminology. Let's think about degrees and, uh, and um, vocations, right? So today what happens is that to, for anybody to get a, a job in a, we'll call it a desk job or a profession, right? We're not talking about business. We're not talking about, um, um, you know, sort of hands on skills, vocational submitted, but a, a job which requires a higher level thinking a person needs to essentially go to college to get a degree to educate themselves in order to be able to, uh, to, to, to work in a in a thinking um, high level thinking job. But if you a- examine what is put into the degree and you examine what the person's doing, very often there's actually very little to do with it. So let's say your average person wants to become an accountant, right? So they need to learn a lot about accounting, they'll take a, a, a lot of courses in university, but truth be told, and even when you get your masters with a requirement of 150, um, you know um, credits today, and then you need to, to you know go through the four exams in order to get there. In the end of the day, very little of that actually relates to what is going <coughs> to be put across the desk of the intern as they start their work, as it happens. Right now, if they didn't have any of those prerequisites, they would be far less equipped to deal with the job. But those ideas don't necessarily match the experience on the ground itself. Right? Is that, is, is that interesting? The same works like this with anything. Like let's talk about marriage for a second. Right? So Aries says, you know, you've got to read all these books on marriage before you get married. It's like, and then you get married and then and you realize that all that theory is very nice, but that in practice, it's much more complicated when it comes to biting your tongue when somebody says something that you didn't like. Right, and it's all very nice to read those beautiful ideas and those little Vortlach and you know, but in the end of the day it doesn't match up. Which means to say that for an idea to be true, there needs to be the melding of the idea itself and the we call it called the experience. I'm sure we've had this the, this, uh, the, this, the, this notion where you're going through in life and you suddenly hear an idea and it matches precisely what you're going through right now and you're like, my goodness, why didn't nobody tell me this before? And the truth is they probably did but you know why you didn't hear it is because your experience had not matched up with that idea yet, right? You were not in a space in life where that idea mattered enough to resonate, to be remembered, to, uh, to make any effect in life, right? Because my experience and the idea are not in tandem yet. In order for an idea to be real, you need to have experience matched with the idea, which is why it's important to have continued education when it comes to jobs why which is why it's important when it comes to relationships to be working on the relationship in theory as well as in practice at the same time all this idea of theory beforehand <laughs> and practice afterwards being divorced from each other doesn't really work um, <clears throat> this, this is the this is the notion Let's just sort of play this out into uh, into into uh, um, into 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 bigger into a bigger life experience what, happens, what does life look like in, in the absence of ideas what does life look like when you don't when you don't get involved in ideas it's the relationship which is never worked on, right? It's the society which just goes but never has any thought leadership, doesn't have universities, doesn't have uh, critical journalism, which doesn't have people sitting in the academy, not in industry, actually revising and and, uh, and and rethinking where it's going. Not calling out that perhaps even a judicial switch might have dangers coming down the river, right? These are, these are things that are important for society because otherwise it will either at best be a monotonous society or at worst be a society which is dangerous. If you take the other idea, what is a society that has, has, uh, that has, has ideas but, but does not have practice? Those are the ideas that die, right? So if you have an idea which is not ever being t- tried, um, put against the null hypothesis and Dented. It's not really an idea, right? It's just just an idea without the real practice. In fact, if you think about this, think about how revolutions work for a moment. What happens is you have an ideologue, right? So you have somebody who gets up there and says it's not fair. We need to have. We need to have. Let's think about you know the, the communist revolutions, right? So there were two revolutions in nineteen seventeen, right? The, uh, white and red. So if you're just following what, what what happened that year, but who who so to speak led? The revolutions. Well, there were ideologues who'd, who'd been people who professed communism and equal rights and and uh, and uh, and the the, the 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 more power to the many. But in the end of the day, who actually drove the revolution were the people who didn't have bread on their table. Think about that. It wasn't the people who had the ideas. They they were at the front of the crowd, but they weren't the people with the pitchforks. French Right. Think about the French Revolution. Think about any revolution. You have what you need to have the correct combination, so to speak, that that perfect storm of ideas coupled with experience. What's experience? The people who have a bad economy and can't afford to pay basic for basic food. Put the two together, now you have a revolution. With just with just disenfranchised people, you have anarchy, right? You have places like Venezuela right without but with just an idea without the other people you may have a few bloggers but you're not going to have a revolution you're not going to have change that make sense right you need to have both in order for it to work so I was thinking to myself how do you map that out like I'm very I, I, I'm very visual how do you map that out like what, what would that look like in like a Venn diagram and so the answer is is Rabbi Hanani ben already told us right what was the, what was his relationship between idea and experience is an ois to a gvil which means letter. What's Gevil? Parchment. And the Gemara actually dictates already what the relationship between the two are. In fact, the Gemara says in Menachos in, uh, in source five, This is the main point. This is the second line. There's a halach when it comes to writing a sefer Torah and when writing Tefillin and that you need what's called mukhaf gvil. That means to say a letter needs to be completely surrounded by parchment. So you say well, what's an example of an exception to that? Take a look at the picture I put in over here. That's an example of not mukhaf gvil. Let's say there's as an example there's a crack in the, in, in the parchment and the crack leads just to the letter but it doesn't infringe upon the letter. Or let's say you write a letter just at the very edge of the parchment In that case it would not be considered because it is not fully encompassed by, not completely surrounded by, the parchment itself. Is that fascinating? I think that's precisely this notion. Is you need to have an idea, you need to have an ice, an undying idea. But it's not real until it is subsumed and surrounded by gvil, which is the experience in which it is supposed to affect. If you don't have the two, it's possible. That's what, uh, th- what I would suggest is going on over here. A few ig- interesting examples over here. So I mean, th- th- this is Paskin in Halacha, in the Shulkarak. Shulkarak talks about this in Lamed Be'ez, which is the beginning where, uh, of Hilchus Tefillin, where it talks about all the Halachas about, about this, and it talks about this requisite spacing around letters when writing. But more than that, There's an interesting halacha, when it comes to a Megillah, when you write a Megillah, Megillah has its own unique set of halachas, which are slightly different to the halachas that pertain to a Sefer Torah. And there's a whole discussion, can you write it in another language? Or what happens if you write it in 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 one language in a different script? So the Shulchan the Aruch says in source six. It was written in in a, a, a translation of a akum in another language. You do not uh, uh, discharge your your responsibility. Only a person who realize, they say it's written in German. If it's written in one language, you read it to a person who doesn't understand that language, then it doesn't look, it doesn't work. Um, because you're really reading it, um, because you're not actually, you're translating as you're reading. So technically speaking, it could be written in another language as long as the recipient, the reader, is hearing in that language and understands it. says the Ramah, It doesn't matter what writing it's actually written in. says the Kavah um on the Shulchan on the Let's say uh, Megillah is written in a different language. The halacha is, if it's written in a different language, the halacha of mukhaf-gvil is not necessary. This, the, the notion that an idea, the ois, and the gvil needs to surround it is unique too when it's written in. Hebrew. Judaism requires an idea to be grounded fully on all sides. It cannot simply exist in the ether. It cannot simply exist on, on the parchment uh, um, by, by itself. In fact, the the Shnir Zalman of the al Rebbe, talks about this in Shira Sherem and he says what does this mean? Take a look at this. This incredibly deep idea that he says in source eight. When you learn Torah, it's not enough to think about Torah. It has to be that you don't learn Torah. You live Torah. right? To be involved. V'lo al wush klal. V'gilu vigilo isa this revelation who we we me that means that my right hand will, will um, his right hand will embrace me qadama khawak es khawer like a person being embraced by their friend wa ana mani and he goes me inyan you me and he goes on to to, to quote a a sourceus venicra khois mali bexmar it source to taliana libo ki hay hine hat zwilinhem eusers haksuvim ala claw Let's think about Tefillin for a moment. He says, Tefillin is letters written on a parchment. Each letter needs to be completely surrounded by parchment on all sides. The soul is is, in a certain sense, the metaphor for the soul is this letter. However, The parchment envelops and captures and couches that idea, that soul of Judaism. He says, in fact, it's the same biological material that the parchment is made of, which is the straps as well, which essentially means is that the idea expresses itself outwards in a real biological material which extends itself like the straps down past the heart of a person. So it's not enough to live in the realm of ideas. It needs to be that that idea, so to speak, expresses itself in the full expression of the biological material, the real life, the nitty-gritty, the weeds of my life need to be an expression of those ideas. That's what seems to be going on over here. And that's the balance that Judaism strives for. If you think about it in in the other way, and then from another perspective, let me just sort of dis- describe this from, from another, another angle. You know why communism doesn't work? It's such a... I just thought about this for for so, for so long. It's such an interesting thing to, to, to think about. It's such a brilliant idea. I mean, Karl Marx, brilliant. Just such a... So, and, and such a noble, just idea. Why, what, why does such a just idea not work? How do we know it doesn't work? Which idea are you... Well, <laughs> yeah, there's many ideas. You're right. But, but the answer is is that... In the end of the day communism does not work because it doesn't work in practice it doesn't work the human human nature cannot there's not maybe the kibbutz movement has been the closest towards that type of idea but it doesn't work there are those who are more equal than others human nature will demand and uh, d- 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 demand certain things that the system of equals will not be able to present and ultimately it will fail it will turn into the, the, the most egregious crimes do you know how many people were killed in, in the Soviet Union, <coughs> we talk, uh, the, the, the numbers are the numbers are estimates. The estimated numbers are twenty-eight million. That's that twenty-eight million. Okay. okay, just understand those are the estimated numbers. In the name of, in the name of, of justice. And that's yes, and that we forgetting the forgetting the, the, the Ukrainian crisis and the, and the starvation in the thirties. Twenty-eight million people, and look what's happened in China. Do we even know the numbers? what's happened under uh, under the banner of the sickle and the and the hammer right just just think about that which means to say an idea is not real until it is expressed in practice and when practice shows it doesn't work that idea is deformed that's what's the big idea you can't stand it now it could be you can't stamp out an idea but it's not real says the Torah until you get until, until it gets onto the parchment and the parchment goes past the heart and it didn't it failed that test in a more we'll call it less uh, in, a, in a less um, scary expression of this. There was a. If anybody has ever read or watched the original Jurassic Park before it became a moneymaker before it became a. I uh, know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, before it became a moneymaker maker um, for for multiple sequels. If you go back to the original theory of Jurassic Park. It, it, well, there's such a fascinating conversation which is had between the scientists and the you know the investors and the investors are talking about you know, This is fantastic. You know here. We are we we've recreated life from millions of years ago and We're gonna have this park and everybody's gonna come and see this and it. It's 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 fantastic This is this is a, a scientific advance and revolution and what the scientists argue is you know before you've had a chance to think about this idea you put slapped it on a, a, a sticker on a on a plastic Lunchbox, and you're selling it already before understanding the ramifications of playing of playing with life, and it doesn't work out. And at the end, at the end of the whole saga, one of the 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 investors, the owner of the institution, says, "You know what the problem was? The you know the reason why this all broke down is too much automation. There was we you know it was too reliant on electricity. When there's a hurricane and the the power went out, and and he missed the point. What was the point? Is that when you try to capture life, when you try to play with life, (coughs) life finds a way." The point is that you can't, it's an idea which doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? Because it doesn't work in practice. Because practice includes human, pro, human um, the, the crassness, the ego, the jealousy, the investments of human beings. That's what real ideas look like, is when you put it into, in, 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 into practice. And that is part of it, animal thought. But the point is, is that you need, you, an idea cannot exist by itself. An idea has to exist in practice, and if it doesn't exist in practice, it isn't a real idea. Which is why Judaism is so unique. Judaism, in a certain sense, we're still here three hundred years ago, still doing some of the things. And yes, in sometimes deformed ways, and yes, in compromised fashion sometimes, <coughs> we're still doing the things that still mattered. Let's, let's look, I want to give three examples. Perhaps uh, people would, would uh, might associate with some more than others, but one example is is prayer. So the Torah talks about prayer. It's an idea, right? So the Torah talks about in in and the Ramam says the beginning of Hristvilla. <laughs> we talk about it every day. You should serve Hashem, your God. What's Avodah Shemilah? It refers to Tzvila. Fantastic, beautiful idea. Very esoteric. Very, very, so to speak, very out there. Very little detail as to what we should be doing about that. Which is how it started. Which means that when it taught, to, when this is the way it used to be, you know what people used to do? They would sit on the top of a mountaintop, looking at God and they're looking at the at the landscape, and they would say, "God, you're magnificent. Thank you for life. I feel I feel that you you've done something in my life." However, that didn't work. Because over time, as reality, as experience, as the human experience changed, the idea needed to also change as well. And therefore, says the Ram, I mean the top of page uh, page seven, he says, So at the beginning. It was really as a person expressed themselves. It was an an organic reflection of a person's relationship with the Almighty. However, Kevon She'golu Yisrael, the next paragraph, At the exile, in the first base of the Mingdash, Jews were born in foreign lands, Babylon, wherever they were taken in this exile. It's very unfair words. It's really a reflection of exactly what it is their language got mixed up in in the in those languages people couldn't really find full expression they weren't articulate enough they weren't educated enough to be able to do this when Nehemiah came back to the land of Israel, the second Commonwealth, he said most of them were speaking Ashtadis. That's referring to the language, whatever there was there. It was whatever that, you know, Semitic language was. They didn't even know how to speak the Jewish language. So a person couldn't even express himself in Lashon HaKodesh, and he says, it seems to be that even in another language, he was deficient. Interesting ideas. His language is simply a means of expression or is it actually educating the ideas itself? Apparently, the Rabbim is saying it, it limited the person's ability to I'll even ask. That's when Ezra said, you know what, we need, we need to standardize this. We need to regulate this process and that's what they did. And they created the they created the brachos because they needed to us to have some sort of, to concretize what, at that point, up till then was a idea. And that idea was too ethereal, was too far removed from this world, and they concretized that idea into the format that we have it with the, with the sacrifices made. With the many sacrifices made, because now I'm being forced to say somebody else's words, even though those are deeply profound and prophetic words, but they are still somebody else's words. Let's take an, a, 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 a moment to appreciate the, the magnificence of that, of, of, that, of that sacrifice and that, that decision. In Source 10, in Rabbi Ben Yilal's book, The Sages, which is really excellent. And he has a four-volume set on Pirke Avos, and it really go, goes through the, the 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 background of the sages. Take a look at the the in source 10, second paragraph. He says. He's quoting the morning brachos, which is the men of the Great Assembly of blessings and prayers, sanctifications, and our dollars for Israel. The sentence from the Talmud embodies a wealth of material concerning the activities of the men of the Great Assembly. The single phrase, blessings and prayers, encompasses almost the entirety of our religious world. Can a person be religious without reciting blessings and prayers? Our daily routine is almost inconceivable in their absence, since one's entire daily connection to God is summed up in these two words, blessings and prayers. Without a blessing or prayer, we have no stable meeting point with God and are left only with the spontaneous overtures at times times of grace or joy or heaven of crisis. That's what it used to be. The men of the great assembly understood that life of the simple people far from the temple, a rural farmer perhaps, had no spiritual dimension or possibility of touching the holy. They saw that only by formalizing the relationship between the individual and his creator would all people have access to their inner spiritual lives. Prayers and blessings introduced a framework of basic religious consciousness into the religious world of the layman. And therefore he concludes this was a revolution that called upon every Jew to participate actively in the service of God rather than simply rely on the knowledge that sacrifices were being offered in the temple on his behalf. Note that Ezra did this when the base was around already. This was already when the second base was built. And he said nonetheless we need to democratize this idea into a specific concrete expression. What a remarkable idea. And I, th- I think about this a lot today. Because you know sometimes, sometimes it's, a, it's a very disheartening thing to think about Jews in prayer. Right, everybody's got you know. First of all, there's just I mean, this, this so many nusach. Everybody's got their own and then everybody's got does it their own way. Right, some people like to jump up and down and scream. Right, some people some people like to, to silently stand there. Some people like to talk through the whole dubbing Some people, uh, <laughs> right? I just it, it's disheartening. And you say you're like you know, is this is it is it really working? And the answer is you know what? Despite all the complexities of human practice and baggage, right? We all come with the baggage of our childhood and the experiences in us in our school, and the way our parents and grandparents educated us, whether through osmosis or specifically. We come with all of that, and we're still doing it somehow. That's remarkable. Just one moment, to stop and think about that. What the Antje Knesset Kestadol did, 2,500 years ago in this enactment, in this reducing an idea into a practical experience, is still happening with all the problems that it has. Yes, Rabbi, it's 28 minutes and it should be 33 minutes. I know, but we're still doing it. That's the point, is that somehow this idea stood the test of time. And yes, there are many Jews who don't pray. Pray, That's true. There are still many Jews. And that's a question in general about their connection to their tradition itself, not about prayer, their connection to tradition as, as a whole, their identity. But those who are close enough to what it means to be a, a traditionally <clears throat> Jewish are all somehow managing to do this in their own way and yes through last we go through ups and downs and sometimes I'm one week a, per, a, per day, a one day a week person and sometimes I'm a, I'm a two day a week person but I'm getting there I'm on the trajectory of connecting to this idea the idea which stood the test of time let's take another, another example the the Moshe Rabbeinu comes out of brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt and they're all standing in the cusp of Egypt, they're, they have their, backs, their bags on their back and this is the first time nobody imagined this moment and you think what would the speech be? Moshe Rabbeinu gets up on the podium and he needs to address the people, they are now, this is the, this is the moment. Now you may say okay so maybe maybe wait until after Kriyas Yamsov, because we don't really know we're out of the coup yet so maybe, maybe, maybe give him seven days but what would Moshe Rabbeinu say? What would the, the words emblazoned into all history be? And you can think about like options as to what that could be, you know you could think about you know, the Gettysburg Address. You know, this would be like you know, that their, their, their sacrifice of your brethren and children and grandparents was not in vain, right? You could think about Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. You know, this is it. It was arduous and it was difficult. There's all these you know iconic moments that he could have trademarked long before anybody else did it. And what does he do? The one thing he says is three times over the end of the boy, just as Israel leaves the land of Egypt. Is the most counterintuitive idea, which seems to be completely missing the boat, and that is is education. He, he talks about this. Is, this is where three of the four sons in the Hagada appear. Is the end of Parshas boy in, in source twelve. That refers to the Ben Ha, which son, is. Russia then if you uh, the, then the the, the in, in source 13 which son's that referring to who's who's that when you tell your son he's not asking that's the uh, because he's not even asking the question and then if you when your son says what's this that's uh, that is the not the that's the time so it's interesting, so those are the three signs. By the way, the Chacham is found in Parshas The Chacham is a person who from a, so to speak, an unexperiential moment is looking at this and saying, you know, I'd like to find out more about my history. These folks are actually watching it and they're saying, wow. Right, so I just to appreciate the, the differences of where people ask. But Moshe Rabbeinu talks about your children, educating your children. You say, why now? Why is it so important? Rabbi Sachs, has the most beautiful essay. It's such an unbelievable essay on this. It appears in numerous <laughs> writings, but this one's called The Far Horizon, and he says the following. It is one of the most counter-intuitive counter- counter- acts in the history of leadership. Moses did not speak of today or tomorrow. He spoke about the distant future and the duty of parents to educate their children. He even hinted, as Jewish tradition understood, That we should encourage our children to ask questions, so that the handling of the Jewish heritage should not be matter of rote learning, but of active dialogue between parents and children. Judaism became the religion whose heroes were teachers, whose passion was study, and the life of the mind. The Mesopotamians built ziggurats, the Egyptians built pyramids, the Greeks built the Parthian, Romans built the Colosseum, Jews built schools. That's why they alone, of all the civilizations of all the ancient world, are still alive and strong, still continuing their ancestors' vocation, their heritage intact and undiminished. Think about that. What a far-reaching idea. You want, everybody wants to to find immortality. Still today, we want our names on stone. We want to find some way that we will be remembered. Let's find something that we can be, that we can make a mark on. Moshe Rabbeinu says, you want to know how to do that? Speak to your children. Speak to your grandchildren. Make sure that they are that they're carrying the same banner. What a remarkable idea. In fact, there's uh, just to take this one step further. Oh, our timing is, uh, is against us, but I'm going to leave out this, way, this, this next source. But, uh, but the, it, it is important that Gomorrah says that there was a person by the name of Yeshua ben Gamla. A very complicated individual. Yeshua ben Gamla lived at the end of the second base of the Migdash period. He was a kohen Um He got into the position not through his own merit. He married Marta ba- ba- Basbaitos who was a very influential fam- family and he got the role of Kohen Godel. But nonetheless, despite the fact that his initial career had, there were misgivings about, he instituted the most important things, says the Gomorrah and Babastra. in order to institute it, The most important thing that, 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 that exists today, and that is the Jewish duals Day School uh, um, system. Why? He realized that up to then, where, how was Jewish education? Where was the center of Jewish education? The home, right? It was patriarchal, right? So it was, it, was, it was in the process of education in the home. What happens if you have a home which can't educate? What happens if you have a parent who's not able to educate? What happens if you have a, a, a single parent family? What happens if you have a zero parent family, right? Orphans. Where does education happen? And he says, therefore, we need to have a way to be able to educate our children for the next generation. And he said, you know what? Let's bring all the children together and he said at 16 or 17 we'll put them all together and educate them. And he said, this is not working. You know why? because they're teenagers. He says, we need to start at six and seven. So that's what, that's what we call first grade. And that and he brought them all together in every location, called says the Gomorrah. In every location, he says, let us now outsource education so that everybody has a chance at the future. And uh, the Gomorrah says, The Torah would have been forgotten for Israel. In Ra, Ra-, Ra- uh, Letters to the Next Generation, which is a very beautiful book written to students of the next generation, he says, um, the following, He says, but there were more than, more than that, that. For Jews, education is not just what we know, it's who we are. No people ever cared for education more. Our ancestors were the first to make an a, a education a, a religious command and the first to create a compulsory universal system of schooling, 18 centuries before Britain. The rabbis valued study as, uh, as higher even than prayer. Almost 2,000 years ago Josephus wrote, should anyone of our nation be asked about our laws, he will repeat them as readily as his own name. The result of our thorough education in our laws, from the very dawn of our of intelligence, is that they are, as it were, engraved on our souls. Meaning, an idea in practice. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu said. Is let it not remain an idea. Let it not remain etched in stone. Let it remain etched in the hearts of the individuals of the future. And he and uh, he he quotes at the very end he said, the Jews in the Eastern European, Euro, Eastern Europe, Europe used to say, to be an apikaris, a heretic, is understandable, but to be an amaorets, an ignoramus, ig- 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 is unforgivable. Folks, most of society today is ignoramus. Most people today don't have opinions because they educate themselves based on headlines. Nobody has qualified opinions on anything that's going on because they don't even read. They don't, they don't have enough patience to even investigate what's going on. That's the society we're living in. God forfend that the Jewish people become ignoramuses. Thank you again. Um, and, And I'd like to give one one, one expression of this idea, um, which I think was remarkable. Um, There's a a fascinating Israeli media company called Open Door Media or or, or Unpacked. It it used to be originally Jerusalem U and they moved into the education sphere. And they put out a, a, a very fascinating video recently that was based on actually some of the theory that they consulted Dr. Abramson on. And I thought it was a very fascinating video. It was called, Why did the Jews not fight back? It was about Holocaust history. Did the Jews fight back? And it's a 15-minute video. It's really worthwhile Read Dr. Abramson did, did, did the theory behind. There's a lady who presents it. A very, very well-researched well, 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 well um, documentary about this concept, something which a lot of us have trouble dealing with. And she goes through a number of the different iterations of, of fighting back. And then she says something which I just thought was really remarkable. And she talks about the by brothers, and the, 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 these these are these are partisans. These were Jewish brothers. Um, three of them who um, who, uh, who there were five of them, but the three of them who survived. It was uh, there was um, Ad- Tuvia, Asael, and Zus who who managed in the, the early 40s to to pull a number of their family members into the forest and they began as partisans at the beginning they started just with 30 people of their extended family and friends and then they realized as the Jews are being rounded up and taken to the extermination that they needed to do more and they went deeper into the na- 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 Naliboki Forest, I'm not sure if that's the correct pron- pronunciation this is in uh, the the Lithuanian Belarus area and, uh, and th- they Ultimately, at a, at a, as they went deeper into the forest, despite the manhunts where the Germans, listen to this, Germans used 20,000 troops to, to pan the forests to find the partisans and groups like them. I mean, can you imagine? The war effort is going on, and you could really be fighting, but they're looking, they're, they're looking for hidden Jews. Um, but nonetheless, they, they set up essentially deep in the furthest reaches of this inaccessible forest a community of, of, uh, of 700 Jews who escaped the Nazis. And in this community, just to take a look on top page 13, what I just think is a remarkable s- a statement, is it was a primitive and unlikely setting in that B- uh, uh, the Bielski group created a community. Despite some opposition from within the group, Tovi Bielski never waived from his determination to accept and protect all Jewish refugees regardless of age or gender, The Bioskis never turned anyone away, permitting the creation of a mobile family camp in effect, a Jewish community in the forest. The group organized skilled workers among the Jewish refugees into workshops, which employed at least 200 people, including cobblers, tailors, carpenters, leather workers and blacksmiths. In addition, the group established a mill, bakery, laundry. The leadership managed a primitive infirmary, a school for children and a a synagogue. That's what they all did in the forest. That's amazing. Now, um, here is is, is is what the uh, the argument is made is did the Jews fight back? you know the, the answer if the Jews fought back? If in the middle of the war, when every person who has got a Jewish grandparent is being sent to a gas chamber, you set up a school, do you know what that means? That means to say that you believe that you're going to win and there's going to be a future. That's how the Jews fought back because we always believed. Every yeshiva has been reestablished. There's a mir, there's a slobodka, they may be in different locations, but there has been a continuation of Jewish education throughout and despite, which means that the idea worked. That's the point. <laughs> and yes, compromised, and yes, there are problems, but you know what? It worked. That's amazing. That's amazing. The idea never died, because it was an idea wedded with practice, it was a it was a, Ois, which was Muqaf Geviel, it was embedded in the consciousness of what it means to be a Jew and it still worked in the depth of this, of, of this inaccessible forest. One last idea. The Gemara tells us, and we'll close with this, I, I, the Gemara tells us in Mesech uh, HaZiomah in, in that if, uh, that, that, uh, if, the, if they, they know that somebody has been fallen, a ruin has fallen over a person, God forbid, there's a tsunami, there's an earthquake, right? The Gemara says if they know that the person is alive then you can go. Okay, you can even on Shabbos go through the rubble. God forbid. Unfortunately, when we saw on Surfside, right? The teams, that were, the Israeli teams, are working day and night. You can do that as long as you know that there's a chance of life. You you mechalal Shabbos to to save lives. Why? The Gemara says. The Gemara says because da'afilu Even if that person is only going to live for a few hours, that's sufficient grounds to be able to do what's necessary to mechalal Shabbos to save that person. The Gomorrah asks an interesting question because the Gomorrah says like this, in, 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 uh, in Avodah Zarah, on Tavgav and Beis. Take a look at the, the in source 21, third line. So Rabbi Yochanan is quoted by different people as saying, Let's say a person is, it, it, we don't know if they're going to live. They cannot consult, and this is referring to the days where we're not talking about whether there's a Hippocratic oath, and we're not talking about standardized medicine and a, a, a judicial system, but there'll be no, uh, non-Jewish doctors were, were, were dangerous to Jews. Right? It, was, it was seen as a, a, a credible threat to lie to consult a non-Jewish doctor because there was no transparency, there was no um, ratings online. The, the, this is, it, it was more, than, more, more or less likely that this person could kill call you just because you're a Jew. Right? Um, and so they said, It's better to remain in a state of suffolk, uh, um, of, of we don't know if this person's terminal, rather than to put oneself into the, such a person's uh, clause. Right now obviously things are different today, but just understand the reality that we're dealing with. let's say a person is definitely terminal. There's no there's no way to get out of this. Then Ms. Rapin then you can consult a a non-Jewish physician. So the Gemara says, but what about Chayesha? Surely he's going to have a few more hours now. But then, if he goes there, who knows? He says the Chayesha The Gemara says we don't worry about Chayesha. We don't worry about those extra hours you could have got in bed in a terminal illness. He says timra de la How do we know this concept? Because the Apostle tells us in Tanach. Well, uh, so what this refers to the Araba Mitzorahim, these lepers who are, uh, who are kicked out of camp. These are Gei Chazi and his sons who don't have access to food. The famine is so, uh, is so powerful. There's no food in Israel. There's been a drought and a famine. People have nothing to eat. They say, if we stay here, we're going to die. So you know what we should do? Let's go to the camp of Aram. Yes, they're going to kill us. But if we stay here, we're going to die. So you see, what, do you, what do you see? Sure they should have just stayed and died. Maybe they would have a chance. No, they still put themselves in, in, in a dangerous, in dangerous way. Um, so this is so it says to us, but wait a second, we are concerned about Chayesha. We are concerned, if a person is, as we, as we saw, if a person is even in, there's a remote chance of saving that person, we will be Mechal to al-Shabbos un, to, to unpack a, uh, um, the, 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 the rubble just to, to find them. So we are concerned about Chayesha. You now you're telling me that, no, you don't worry about a little bit of life because you know what, maybe... So it says toisus in the top of the page on the top right. You can it goes the rabble. We always are concerned what is for the best of the patient. If you don't go through the rabble, that person is going to die right? So you need to to say that person. If you leave the person in this case, they're definitely going to die. Which means you have to assess every situation, which comes down to questions in medical treatments, which means, and this is the halacha, right? That means to say that if if there's a, a treatment, you have to analyze how much, danger is there in such a treatment, or this intervention, and how much is there, uh, How much of a percentage of death is there without the treatment? And that's a very complicated question, but it depends is what is the most likely to let this person live. Which means that Judaism introduced into a world which is devoid of this conception, the notion of sanctity of life. We care about life, no matter how much life, no matter how little, no matter what the condition or quality of that life is, we care about life, which informs our medical decision-making today which informs that in, in the world which speaks about quality of life, we talk about sanctity of life and yes we worry about quality of life. It does impact the decision making, but, quali- but sanctity of life is not a language which is talked about in the environment around us, in, in society around us. This idea has impacted us so much so that I I'd like, I'd proudly say that if you look at the Israeli army's code of conduct, in Source 22, there there's many lines, it's, it's available online, so you can read the whole thing. IDF soldiers will not use their weapons and force to harm human beings who are not combatants or prisoners of war. And will do all in their power to avoid causing harm to their lives, bodies, dignity and property. Folks, are there mistakes that are made? Yes. Are there bad soldiers? There are. But you know what? Listen to the statistics for a moment. Three statistics that are worthwhile knowing. Today, militaries are supposed to be constrained by the laws of armed conflict, or the international humanitarian law, which exist in large part to protect civilians during the times of war. The IHL requires armed forces to act only to achieve legitimate military objectives to distinguish between civilians and combatants and to avoid causing disproportionate damage to civilians who may be near to a legitimate military target. Despite often being forced to engage in urban urban warfare against terrorist groups that hide behind civilians and fire rockets from densely populated areas, the IDF has met and often exceeded the highest standards of the IHL and LOAC. Um, this is uh, you can read the paper. When it suspects civilians are near a military target, the IDF warns them to evacuate with phone calls, text message leaflets, and them, uh, and other means. It also aborts many operations to avoid harming innocent people. In, indeed, the IDF's tactics go often beyond what is required by the Geneva Conventions. In a 2015 report about the IDF, military leaders from other liberal democracies expressed strong concerns that the actions and practices of the IDF to prevent collateral damage were so extensive that they would curtail the effectiveness of our own militaries were they to become constraining norms in warfare enacted in law. Which means no other country can abide by the care and sanctity of life that the IDF provides. The collateral damage in the Israeli army far the right word is not exceeds, but it is so much less than, what, uh, the, the, than what, what the armed or joint forces of the West did anything in the Middle East well, uh, over, over the course of the Iran-Afghanistan war. It is almost shocking. Which means to say, again, is it perfect? No. Are there, are, there, are there exceptions? Of course. But at the end of the day, the idea didn't die. And that means to say is that ideas matter. And when ideas are matched with practice, when they are surrounded by that parchment throughout our lives, they actually change the way we act. And the Jewish nation acts differently in this regard as a function of that. So the question then comes back is do ideas matter? And the question is, what ideas and how are they nested in experience itself? Rabbi Zay thank you so much for your time today. Ezra Hashem, we'll continue. And just a quick reminder the next in the next week, um,